You're listening to The 123 Show with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Tuesday afternoon. And since it's Tuesday, you know it's something food and drinks related. And I'd love to welcome back on the program Tuesday reporter Andrew Dambina. Andrew, it's great to speak to you this week. How are you doing? Hello, Noreen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, listener. I'm, I'm well, thank you. And... Uh, Good afternoon, Noreen. Are you going to introduce our guest today, or shall I? I, I either, 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 or. I'm, I'm happy to. I was, I was going to say today we, we've got a real treat because this afternoon we'll be speaking, uh, to Master of Wine Nigel Sneed, who's worked in wineries across the world and is now the Global Director of Wine Quality and Compliance for Accolade Wines, uh, which is an international distributor, uh, headquartered in his native country, Australia. So welcome to the program, Nigel. Thank you so. Much much for, for joining us this afternoon and thank you to Andrew for, for setting this interview up. Thank well, you very much, Noreen and Andrew. It's a great pleasure to be with you. We Thanks are live much. this got... afternoon on Facebook as well. So uh, if you, if the listeners can, do join us on, on Facebook, Noreen Mayer on RTHK Radio 3. You'll be able to see Nigel um, and also Andrew, uh, well, yeah, a picture, sure. well, a drawing of Andrew. Because I've got a technical <laughs> glitch at the moment, so... So uh, there's a drawing of me, a self-portrait that I did some time ago, so you can enjoy that. Um, but otherwise, Nigel and Noreen are very much in full view. And Nigel is, uh, has against, uh, is sitting against a backdrop of one of the accolade wineries. Now, you're, in fact, you're in charge of quite a few wineries within the accolade group, aren't you, Nigel? Um, and I suppose it keeps you going around. Before we went on air, you were just mentioning that, uh, of course, the harvesting of a year's crop from the vines comes at different times. Are you physically having to move around them constantly? I do, um, but obviously I can't get down the nitty-gritty, getting my hands too dirty on day-to-day operations anymore. Um, But we certainly keep an eye on what is going around, not just across Australia, but as part of Accolade, we also have operations in New Zealand, in South Africa and Chile. but also, yeah, I would have to say, Australia is by far our, our origin and our largest uh, centre of production. Right. So, yeah, we, we, we operate vineyards uh, from the very western tip of the country over in Margaret River um, over to the extreme southeast in Tasmania and pretty much in all wine-producing states with the exception of New South Wales at the moment. Right. Do you, you say at the moment tantalisingly there. Is that something that, uh, uh, that you're looking at? It's always tantalising. Um, we yeah. have uh, we, we do source a little bit of um, uh, fruit from New South Wales for some of our commercial blends, uh, right. and we have sourced uh, Chardonnay grapes for sparkling wine and for our premium Eileen Hardy Chardonnay in the past, ah. um, just not in recent years. Right, right. Well, it's uh, you. You mentioned that you're across Australia, then apart apart from uh, New South Wales specifically for uh, for you know for, for total production. Um, but um, but but you, you, I mean yourself, you've been all over the world, literally, haven't you? From the age of seventeen, you. Um, yeah, I've travelled quite a bit. Yes, um, I have travelled and studied and worked in several countries. I, I did my enology degree initially in Australia, and then went to France and did the equivalent there. Um, mm. I had a great affinity with France. I, I loved being there as a student, and I went back to work there several times before eventually settling there and ended up living there for about 12 years. Um, 
and then uh, went to the UK, uh, which has one of the most international wine trades um, in the globe. And right. that was a fascinating place to live for a young-ish winemaker. I wasn't quite young, young then, but young-ish winemaker because you're exposed to wines from every wine-producing country in the world. Everyone wants to sell in England. Um, it's fantastic exposure and it's a very easy place to travel, well, it used to be, uh, a very easy place mm. to travel to and from. Um, you know, I could go down to South Africa on an overnight flight, um, spend a few days there and then come back. I could easily go to any country in Europe um, by direct flight. So that, that ease of travel, that ease of getting around was absolutely fantastic. It's, it's interesting that you mention um, the, the flying around aspects because also something you were very involved in, um, in based in France among the, uh, the many years that you spent time there was uh, in actually bringing over so-called then, what they were, they were called flying winemakers from Australia who flew into France, the old world winemaking, old guard region. <laughs> of winemaking in Europe, bringing new world techniques. That must have been, I would imagine that must have been quite a challenge, wasn't it? To, to, with, with some of the old kind of firm ways of traditionally making wine in, uh, you know, in France. It, it was. And in fact, I was the first flying winemaker in that project, which was set up. It was a, a trademark name set up by the Sunday Times Wine Club uh, in 1987. And the brief was to make a fresh dry, crisp, Australian-style white wine um, in the southwest of France. And uh, it was not a particularly great vintage, 1987. And at the time, uh, you know, it was challenged by rain, rain at the wrong time. And at the time, it was, uh, you know, that was my brief, make it fresh, clean, just straight down the line, nothing fancy, no oak, no malolactic, et cetera. Um, Yeah. And that was extremely challenging because there's a time when you know, Australia was right into the heights of technology and loads of refrigeration and cultured yeast, et cetera, et cetera. And here there was no refrigeration to speak of. There was no cultured yeast. It was all natural. And um, the result was, you know, within uh, three and a half weeks from picking, we had wine going into bottle. Hmm. Um, partly I, I did rush it a little bit, I admit, because I had to get back to my day job in Australia. I take my holidays to do this. Wow. And the winery where I was based had their wine sort of slugging, sluggishly trying to finish fermentation with all sorts of uh, things going wrong. So yeah, it was a, that, it was a very amazing. different time, and that that technology transfer happened very quickly because I went back uh, a couple of years later, and already uh, that winery in particular had moved on in leaps and bounds, and we saw the effect of that within about five years the the differences between the approaches were um getting uh significantly less um nigel well, i just wanted to quickly jump in and to, to 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 ask how did your journey uh, of being a masters of wine begin um here in hong kong we have very few i mean andrew you, you, you this is much more your area than my area but i'm just curious nigel how did your journey begin it occurred to me when I was living in London that it would be a fantastic opportunity to uh, just round out my education. I mean, I, it's not that I needed to do another degree. I'd already done two in enology and I'd done an MBA. Mm. But um, 
I could see in the UK trade the the MWs that I was exposed to uh, on a reasonably regular basis were a fantastic crowd of people, extremely knowledgeable and extremely humble, um, and I really appreciated that. And so when I was living in the UK, I was working with a Californian company at the time, uh, but based out of the UK, and um, I started doing the, the MW program there and started in the UK and then finished it after I moved to the USA. I actually moved to California in 2015, and so I finished the MW in 2017 while I was there. Okay. Did you... Did you... Were there a lot fewer uh, Masters of Wine at that time? There are now, um, you know, over 300, and it seems that uh, there are more qualifying uh, Masters of Wine in this region, in Asia, uh, at the moment. Yes, you're, you're probably seeing that more in Hong Kong. There are several in, in Hong Kong now who I know. Yeah. Um, if not all, I certainly know most. Mm. Um, quite some of us graduated together in the same year. Others graduated a year or two before or... Sometimes oh. in the case of Deborah Myberg, many years before. Um, mm. But uh, there's just over 400 now, and I'd say the number qualifying uh. per year is not that high. I think it, in a high year, you might get 12 to 14 qualifying. Um, yeah. Given the number that start the program, the number enrolled in the program, the, the pass rate is still less than 10%. Wow. Mm. That's very, yes, it's, very, very tough. It's very tough. Do, it, I mean, and it's split, isn't it, between theory and practical. So you do, those who are taking it um, can get one part of the paper uh, okay and then have to resit if they don't manage the other one. Is that the way it works? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. what are yeah, some right. of the qualities? And in, taking, and in taking the practical, you have to pass all elements of the practical in one year. You can't just pass white wines one year and red wines the next, etc. You have to do them right. all in once. Okay. Um, yes, it's very challenging. Wow. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, it sounds very tough. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the qualities of a good Masters of Wine then? What, what are they looking for? Um, a very open mind, uh, an ability to express oneself very clearly. Um, to answer questions directly, uh, reading and understanding the question and not just dumping, not just doing a brain dump on paper of everything you know about a certain ah, subject. Yeah. Um, so you can know a lot about a subject, but if you can't express it clearly to answer the question, then mm. it's not much use. Um, right. And, you know, the great example of writing clearly, structuring your points, arguing your points... Um, is fundamental. And then when it comes to tasting, a knowledge of wine styles from around the world. Um, I mean, you could be a specialist in a certain variety, and that might help you if that variety happens to be in the paper, but you could do a paper which doesn't have that variety at all. Um, it's not going to help you. Um, so you have to be able to taste and assess wines blind and be able to explain them to somebody who could know nothing about them um, both in terms of what they're made from, where they're from, how they're made, but also how they sit qualitatively. So if you have a bottle of glass mm. in front of you, you could say this is a perfectly reasonable every night of the week supermarket white wine, which should retail for about £7 UK, for example. Or, on the other hand, you say this is definitely a clear class A Bordeaux and a fantastic vintage, great stuff, etc., etc. 
Um, yeah. So you have to be able to nail that quality. So the old adage is you need to be able to, uh, what was it? You need to be able to taste like a detective and write like a barrister. <laughs> wow, it'd be so well, cool to, to not, hang out with masters not, of wine at parties or at a restaurant, taste the wine, be like, you're overcharging us big time and <laughs> or well, undercharging. <laughs> take them to court like a barrister. But it's, well, yeah, yeah. Um, well back, back, to, back to the here and now then, um, uh, Nigel. Among the wine producers that you are overseeing for Accolades Distribution, um, are some top names in Australian winemaking, and some of the oldest ones. And uh, one of the oldest is probably Hardy's, a name that mm -hmm. is very visible in Hong Kong. Uh, and it's known by wine drinkers here, but it's known mostly for its everyday type wines, which mm -hmm. are we, we all see in supermarkets among next to other labels. Um, you know, they are they are around quite a lot. Um, but less known to many would be that uh, Hardy's um, has over its time and still now produces some what would be called fine wines. Um, um, do, do you do you uh, I mean, do you think that that is a lesser known fact in the world of uh, production? Obviously, there is some, uh, you know, more uh, high quantity produced of of uh, of, um, of of wines that people are seeing. So, yeah. but there are some stellar ones, aren't there? Absolutely true. And um, the, the image behind me is, is of uh, one of the older Hardy wineries. Um, it was built in about 1875, this one. The mm. company dates back to 1853 when Thomas Hardy came here from the UK and started growing vines and making wine in Australia. And yeah. it, you're right, it does have a a large presence in the um, popular wine segment, uh, which has mm. grown over time. And that, that grew probably more in the last 30 to 40 years than prior to that, um, yeah. back when it was a much smaller, still significant, but much smaller family company. Probably the split between the iconic top-level wines and the popular wines was a bit more even. Mm. Um, but since the 80s, really, the, the push and the growth has occurred at the popular end. Um, you know, exports for yeah. Australian wine have driven a lot of that um, because a lot of our premium top-level wine still sells in Australia predominantly um, mm. with smaller proportions exported. Um, so in Hong Kong, yes, you do have some of our iconic wines. And I don't know if you can see this bottle I'm holding up. You can only see the label. That's funny, the way Zoom works. Um, yeah. That is our Eileen Hardy Chardonnay, for example. Which right. Is, well, um, that, not that, made every year. Yeah, um, that's, um, I mean, it, at, the at the top end where you do have one like that, and that is a, uh, that's regarded as one of the best from, from the producer, isn't it? But, um, yes. but it's... Yep. Um, uh, are you so? Are you? That's obviously your position. Are you very uh, harsh about um, about those decisions and not being able to make a vintage every year? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And there was a very interesting article uh, that Jancis Robinson, MW, wrote mm. about three or four years ago. She she was invited to a retrospective tasting of thirty vintages of Eileen Hardy Chardonnay that right. went back to the mid eighties. And it wasn't mm. produced every year. And what's fascinating is that it has evolved over that time. It's gone from being sourced uniquely from Padthaway in South Australia to now being sourced 
in several regions and blended from several regions in most mm. cases, not every single one. But in most cases, it will be a blend of grapes now from Tasmania, from the Upper Yarra Valley, maybe from Margaret River, sometimes the Adelaide Hills. As I mentioned earlier, New South Wales, sometimes uh, we had grapes from Tumbarumba uh, just outside of Canberra. Uh, high country um, featuring an Eileen Hardy Chardonnay. So the the origins will vary. Uh, the style is um, very much able to move with the times and change and evolve, but the ultimate word is quality and making the very best we can from that vintage in a given year. And if the very best in a given year is not good enough, mm. then we don't make it. That's simple. Right. So there was no that's 2018, for example, and there was okay. no 2020. That's that's interesting because, as you say, you're taking from almost every well, every every wine growing state of Australia. So, I mean, if it, it, it would it be common with such a different uh, you know spread of uh, of wine growing microclimates, terroirs, that the that 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 you would think it's inevitable that some are going to be up to scratch from uh, from some. It's very interesting that there were a couple of years there that you mentioned where that didn't happen. Did they? Were there reasons um, of uh, climactic, similar climactic yeah. conditions across the country? Yeah, ge generally, you're right. Generally, you, you won't get all regions failing in a given year. Um, yeah. But at the very top end, we have to be extremely selective. And, for example, in 2020, yes, arguably, we could have done a 100% Margaret River Chardonnay for Eileen Hardy right. because okay. it makes fantastic Chardonnay. And the West was spared uh, some of the problems that we had over here in the East. Mm. But then it wouldn't have been Eileen. It would have been very atypical. So it would have been bouncing around too much. Right. Um, so we have to keep that core of what it is about. So the 2019 did not feature any wine from Tasmania, for example. Um, whereas the 2021 will be almost all from Tasmania. So it right. does change. Right. That, that depends yeah. on climatic, you know, either rain events at the wrong time or the big um, the big problem we have in Australia uh, are bushfires. Yeah. And smoke yeah. from smoke from uh, burning forests is doesn't go well with grapes at all. No, no. Has that spoiled? Has that spoiled some of your some of your vines? Uh, not just in Chardonnay, but accolades, other vines, other types of grape variety in recent yes, years. Yes. It's, it's worse for red wines um, because they have to stay on skins longer and smoke does get in the skins and uh, is leached out. Um, right. But, yeah, it does affect white wines as well. Right. Um, Going back to Chardonnay really quickly, because I'm, I'm aware we haven't got much time left. Um, one thing that, that a lot of people don't realise is that you can cellar or keep for quite a while. You can age Chardonnay quite well. And with a good quality wine, um, that's, uh, that, that's more... Uh, uh, sort of appropriate, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. And there are two things. Eileen Hardy Chardonnay does age extremely well. And I referenced earlier that tasting that Jancis Robinson did of 30 vintages of Eileen Hardy Chardonnay. When you look mm. at that, some of her highest ratings of wines were from over 20 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, and one thing which has really helped us too, uh, particularly in Australia and several other New World countries, I don't know if you can see this, is that now we seal wines with screw caps almost yeah. exclusively and not natural corks, simply because we went through 
a terrible couple of decades having very poor quality corks and they were tainted, they were leaking, etc. And yeah. there was no such thing as a good bottle, sorry, a good vintage. There was occasionally you get a good bottle, but more often than not, you'd be disappointed. For example, with right. Eileen, one of the vintages that really opened my eyes when I came back, because I've lived out of the country for 30 years almost, 27 years away. When I came back, was tasting the Eileen Hardy Chardonnay 2004 last year. It was. It looked like it was a three or four year old wine in terms of colour. Okay, it may I'm, have I'm, been five or six, but it was from 2004. It's absolutely right. stunning. No. Nigel, I'm, I'm sorry to disturb you mid-sentence there, but it's really d difficult to do that. But we are, we do have to take a break for the news now, I'm afraid. Noreen, are Absolutely. we going to, yep. are we going to come back or are we going to leave it here? Yeah, I'm afraid we're, we're, we're going to have to leave it here this afternoon. Um, um, but I really look forward to having Nigel back another time. Uh, this this conversation could go on. And yeah. thank you. So, <laughs> no, we'll have to revisit well, it I'd, I'd another be, time. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much right, to Nigel Sneed. Thank, thank you so thank much you. to you, Goodbye. Andrew Dambina. Bye for now. Thank you.